it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 5011 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. It seems like every couple months I'm good for a senseless controversy that comes out of nowhere. It's kind of hilarious to me because trust me, the things I say or tweet, I don't do it with the intention of it becoming a big deal. In my mind, it feels pretty benign. And then all of a sudden, shit meets fan. So the word of the week is shade because I've been accused of throwing some. And personally, I think I was just calling it as I saw it. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. One of my guilty pleasures this summer has been watching The Real Housewives of Potomac. Several of my friends watched the show and they told me repeatedly, you got to get on it because it is indeed messy goodness. So I started watching it a couple months ago and now I'm pretty much caught up to the current season. And so I tweeted about what was the biggest moment in the show's history, which was a fight between Monique Samuels, the wife of former NFL star Chris Samuels, and Candace Dillard Bassett, who is a former Miss United States, uh, has a hair and pageant consulting business, and she is married to a chef. Now, to give you a little bit of backstory, the tension between Candace and Monique had been building for a while. Before they actually had a physical altercation, they nearly came to blows before when they spent the day at another former castmate's house. Okay, this is my other issue. Lay it, lay it. My issue with you, Ashley, is that you have purported yourself to be in this group. The person we're gonna bless the food real quickly. Lord, thank you for all the food on the entire table. Father God, cover this with the blood. I want to know everything. Let us have a great. When I ask you for the truth, you want to come at me with this whole. (laughs) Mind your business. Are you really mind your business? Honestly, you're telling me that you know exactly what my body is feeling. No, when your when your mom is taking care. As you all heard, Candace seems like she's with the shits. That was certainly not the first time she got into it with a cast member because then in season four, her and Ashley Darby went at it. I feel like like people who are supposed to be like on my team and be my friends Mm -hmm. are like finding openings to just like support other people. Let it go. This is a really, really complex group of friends, and we all have our opinions. We're very strong, and you are just as strong. You know, I think the problem is, I don't think you're hearing what we're trying to say to you. No, I hear it. But you say that, but then you take it like we're attacking. For you to call me a hypocrite. Because... Candace, I'm so irritated right now with you. Like, seriously. I'm irritated, too. I'm not a hypocrite. I've been saying the same things to you. You don't like the fact this that I'm being rude no, with you. I don't like the fact that you are sticking up for someone I'm not sti- who had nothing and you but negative things to say up. It doesn't about matter. You. You're, literally, you're starting a war on something that has nothing to you, do with you. I, I can't receive, I cannot receive 
being chastised or told nobody's by someone, cha- nobody's by someone who has nobody's done the same thing they're you. telling me not to do. This is very, very sad to me. And now you're literally, doing, you you're literally doing the same things this that she sad. did last year, and you can't even you see that. that. So why don't, why don't you go over there? Since y'all are good friends now, right here, go over there and be with her. You're not going to talk to me like I'm a child. Wait, wait, wait. Who you calling a little girl? I'm talking to you. You're not talking to me. You need to tone it down. I've done nothing but ride for you since you've been in this situation. Have you? Have you? Oh, you want yes men. I got it. All okay. Right. You're, you're doing you want three yes much. men. Yeah, walk away. Don't start. I will still drag you pregnant and all. Oh, you going to drag me now? I will drag oh, yeah, you. You going to drag me? I'll drag you. Oh, drag me, Monique. All right, drag me. No, 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 Drag no, me. Please don't. Please Get don't. Off do it. I'm about to throw this bottle at her here. She wants to talk to you. Stop. Stop. You're going to stop. She needs to grow the up. Drag me, Monique. And so fast forward to last season, which was season five, when the altercation of all altercations happened between her and Monique. So, given all that history, I tweeted the following after watching the season five reunion, where both Monique and Candace told their side of the story. And Monique also finally apologized to Candace, something she had not done before. I tweeted, my guilty pleasure this summer is watching Real Housewives of Potomac. I'm finally at the season five reunion where Monique brought the binder. Side note, Monique brought a whole ass binder with receipts on everybody to the reunion. It was so messy and so entertaining. Back to my tweet. Here's what I'm not understanding about their fight. When you dare someone to drag you and then they do exactly what was asked, how is this an attack? Now, understand Candace filed charges against Monique after the fight. Monique responded by filing her own charges and ultimately a judge threw it out of court because the judge ruled it was, quote, mutual combat. I also tweeted, Clearly grown women fighting is a terrible look, but it is blame on both sides. Candace is always telling people she's about that action. And then you get the action you ask for. So part of me thinks the real emotional trauma is losing the fight because Candace at the reunion talked about being on medication and about how this has been emotionally traumatizing for her to be involved in this altercation. Now, I consider that to be rather benign commentary, but Miss Candace did not take it that way. She sent me this long ass direct message on Instagram talking about how she supported me when I was going through my drama with Donald Trump. And she could not believe that me, a journalist, was condoning black women fighting and that she is, quote, contracted to do a job that sometimes requires me to be overzealous in my communication. Now, I played y'all the clips. That's a little bit more than over zealous now I was content to just leave it there and not respond because I just found it all to be so silly 
But then Miss Candace decided to take things to Twitter and she tweeted, messaged you on IG since you're too chicken shit to have your Twitter DMs on. Oh, so now I'm a chicken shit. Well, allow me to retort. Number one. I don't know Candace Dillard Bassett from a can of paint. I'm just going by what I see. I watch Real Housewives of Potomac because it's messy. It's entertaining and it's something to get my mind off the fact that the world is on fire every five minutes. I'm not team Candace or team Monique because I don't know either of them. Number two. Yes, I'm a journalist, sometimes an esteemed one, but I'm also from Detroit. I also grew up in the hood. I've witnessed and been in my share of messy situations, been involved in a few beefs, my damn self. The rule of thumb is don't start none, won't be none. The other rule of thumb is you can't talk crazy to people and expect people not to react. Candace is not the only Potomac housewife that talks crazy to people. They all talk crazy to each other. And I'm honestly shocked there aren't more fights on this show because of the way they talk to each other. I understand words are just words. And in no way was I saying that the only way two black women with a beef can solve a problem is with their hands. And I do understand that every time somebody talks greasy to you, that is not an invitation to fight. However, comma, there are certain lines that when crossed, you might just get your ass whooped. To me, Monique and Candace have been guilty of talking real crazy to each other. What I witnessed was a fight, a fight that both of them contributed to starting. Sorry to disappoint you, Candace, but that wasn't an attack. That was shit coming to a head between two folks who clearly can't stand each other. You dared this woman to drag you and well, that's what the fuck she did. It is what it is. As far as Candace being all internet tough, I'll pay that shit no mind. Child, you on national TV on a reality show and thus inviting people to have commentary on how you behave. Don't be mad at me. Be mad that Monique got the drop on you. The word of the week is shade. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Now on to today's show. My guests today, and that was plural, uh, they are icons. They are two of the biggest hit makers in music history. They started off working with Prince, and then they went on to work with Janet Jackson, Boyz II Men, Mariah Carey, so many of some of the biggest acts in music. And despite producing so many songs that have been the soundtracks to our lives, they are just now coming forth with their own debut album, which features many of the big time artists that they've worked with in the past. So I'll be talking to them about that and also listening to some terrific stories from their fantastic careers. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So um, I was joking about this with you guys when we were off air, but now that we're on air, I'll bring it uh, right to people. But 
for so long, you all have been the masterminds behind a lot of the music that we have loved for our whole lives. And while this new project you have is very much still in that that vein, but you're more front and center. This is the first time we're getting that full Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis experience. So I, I'm curious as what is it like for you both to be on kind of this side of things where you're the artist? Yeah, you know, we realized when we first <clears throat> kind of had gotten the album completed, we did a playback for some of the people at the label. And um, we everybody said they enjoyed what we did. And so afterwards we were getting up getting ready to leave. We're like, okay, great. I'm glad you liked it. And then they go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who's going to shoot the videos? Like, wait, where are you guys going to do your interviews? Are you guys going to tour? Are you going to whatever? And it was the first time we realized we normally just hand that stuff off when it leaves the studio. It goes up with the artists and they go on their journey. We move on to the next project, but this was like, Oh no, we got to actually pay attention to that kind of stuff now. <laughs> it's like, so it's kind of crazy, but um you know, being the artist is is hard. I got to tell you, it's it's tough. I don't know. I like behind the curtain much better. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. It's just part of the journey. And, uh, you know, I'm enjoying it. It's a little bit of extra, you know, that we have to add to this. Because usually we're being Nostradamus for everybody else, trying to figure everybody else out, you know, and uh, doing the things behind the curtain to help them flourish. And so now we need other people to help us do that same thing. So. It's just a different position, but we know the uh, the rules of the game. So we just play along. Let's go. Well, I, I guess I shouldn't say it's not like you're completely inexperienced about being the, the talent because you were the talent before you all became uh, the, the super producers that you are. But nevertheless, uh, even though it feels weird to say that this is your first, you know, sort of solo album. Uh, and Terry, I'll, I'll start with you with this. What made now the right time for you all to, to do this kind of project? Well, I guess we're old enough to be selfish. <laughs> that we've been doing this long enough. We've done it with uh, enough people. We have enough friends and people that we're fans of that we could get the people to assist us because neither of us are singers. So we need people to sing. And it took us this long to know kind of what we wanted to do and how to accomplish what we wanted to do, uh, to be smart enough in that, that vein. And... You know, it's just time. We, we tried to do this 35 years ago. It didn't work out, fortunately, probably, um, because we've had a, a wonderful run as producers and, and songwriters. But now it just seems like let's just have some fun. Let's do it the way we want to do. And we realized a few years ago that we've never gone out and performed our own songs. That's something that we haven't done. So we're kind of exploring the, the first in our career again now as classics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jimmy, what does that feel like? It feels great. And I think what Terry said is, is, is totally true. My son says that the genius is not in the planning or in the idea, but it's in the execution of it. And so I think we kind of felt like it's taken us all this time to know enough to do what we really wanted to try to accomplish with the album. And so, um, but it feels great. It's a, it's a great, Terry always likes to say it's, it's about the journey. And I agree with that. We, we love, we love the journey. We love the interaction with the artists. We love the being able to try to collaborate. We're, we're collaborators. I mean, first of all, amongst ourselves, we're collaborators for, you know, 40 plus years. 
but we just love the, the art of collaboration and just trying to make sure that each of the artists for in our minds sound like their best selves. And in doing that, we hope that the fans who have always loved those artists fall back in love with those artists again in a new way. But also those artists fall back in love with themselves because they, because they get to hear themselves in a way without the pressure of, you know, my new album and my record company and all of that stuff. It's like, no, let me just go make music, you know? And then hopefully they get that feeling about themselves. And I think that's been the funnest part of this, this whole adventure. But I think to use a sports analogy, the difference is, is that, you know, on a basketball team, there's always the people that score, right? But then there's the people that set those people up to score. We've always been the people to set people up. We're the assist guys, right? And we know, oh, yeah, you like to shoot threes? Okay, we're going to get you open. Oh, alley you you going to the basket? Okay, that's what we're going to do. So that's what it is. So for us, it's a little bit different because now we become a little more of the scorers. And we can do all of that, too. But, you know, we can rebound. We can do a lot of stuff. So we, we like doing all of those things, but we feel now we have enough experience to do it and pull it off in the right way. The execution is the important thing. And I th- we think we can execute the good idea. So from Chris Paul to a little Kyrie Irving, who's more of a scoring point guard. Okay. <laughs> I'm picking up what you're putting down. Uh, now, luckily for you, you have produced such phenomenal transcendent artists that when it came time to make, your own project. I would imagine that those phone calls are probably pretty easy to make <laughs> given the hits that you produce for people, but you produce so many uh, for people. How did you narrow the list? Uh, how did you know exactly who you wanted to work with? And we'll get into who's all on this album. Um, uh, Terry, you can uh, start with that one. I guess the list is long because we love a lot of people. We're fans of a lot of people and uh, we have a lot of great friends. So, it was kind of like starting with the people like directly in front of you right now was kind of what, what happened with us started a few years ago when we were inducted into the songwriter hall of fame and we were inducted the same year with Babyface, and we've been threatening to work together for many, many years. And, you know, everybody thought we were rivals and we were, you know, in the ring together boxing, but it was never that way. Cause I always say that the only, um, rivals that we have are each other like because we're trying to be the best us and that's always tough you know trying to do your best but um so we've committed at that point to maybe doing something with babyface and that kind of just started the ball rolling in terms of doing this album that we threatened to do 35 years ago and so he was one of the first people that we commandeered and we would create this music and over the years, we created music with a lot of people. And we'd always ask, you know, would you do something for our record? And everybody would say yes. But then we would create that music. And then they go, man, that's really good. I, I need that on my album. So it took us this long to uh, learn how to be selfish, I guess. So we just said, all right. Because even Usher last year, he said, like, yeah, man, I need that song on my record. I was like, no, nah, man, finally, I'm going to do something for myself. So you got to wait on this one, brother. You got to take the back seat on this one. So it, it wasn't difficult because we have a lot of great friends and there's so much great talent out there. And we love to create music. So it's all married in the same way. And we just take it a step at a time. And this particular set of art, group of artists that we have on our record now, where people who made themselves available and we 
bless them and thank them for it. <laughs> so, Jimmy, run down the list. I know you have Mariah Carey, Babyface, as Terry just mentioned, Mary J. Blige. Who else we got on this this all-encompassing album? Yeah, it is all-encompassing. Well, at least for volume one. We're calling the album volume one. We make that very clear because volume two is already in the works. But um, but yeah, it's we started off with people who we really had worked with before. And so we got to go back to the to the roots of our very beginning. Forty years ago, the Time album was released. So we got it. Get Moore's Day and we reunited him with Jerome Benton. So it's the kind of Purple Rain gang back together. Um, and then we added the roots to that because we love Questlove and we love what they do. So that's a very kind of cool pairing, we thought. Um, and then when you talk about foundationally, um, our foundation of our record label, we started um, 30 years ago, which was Perspective Records. Um, our first group that we released was The Sounds of Blackness. So Sounds of Blackness set everything in motion for us. They're the foundation of really everything we do musically. Um, so they're a part of the record. We're really excited about that. And then uh, Boys to Men. Because Boys to Men um, is just the best at what they do and the ability to, to create things like On Bended D and Seasons of Loneliness and those songs that we've done before. But to get back together with them and do a record that's, you know, strings and horns and chord changes and bridges and modulations and all the things that are important to them about music is the same thing that's important to us about music and to be able to tell those kinds of stories. Growing up, one of our favorite groups was the Gap Band. So we got Charlie Wilson and Charlie is amazing. Like he's, he's just, I can't even explain that his vocal talent is just in a whole nother world. I'm trying to think, I'm, uh, cause I know I'm going to miss some people. Oh, the queen of hip hop soul, Mary J. Blige. I mean, like if there was a Mary J. Blige fan club, I mean, there's tons of them, but I would be like the leader of that fan club because. I would have to fight you. <laughs> right. We would be fighting yeah. to see who would be president of our fan club. <laughs> She's the best of the best to me. And so to have her involved is is amazing. And then, you know, we worked with, you know, because you can't just have Grammy winners on the record. You got to have the Tony winner on the record. So we have uh, Heather Headley on the record and Heather Headley. Actually, Elton John introduced us to her and said, you got to do a record with her. And we did a record a while back called I Wish I Wasn't. You Wish I Wasn't. Yeah, that was. um you know, a big record for her. So now we've teamed up again to do something now, which is pretty amazing. And uh, who am I missing? I know I'm forgetting some folks here. Um, Did you say Tony? Oh, Tony Braxton. Oh my God. Right. And that's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say, Terry. Thank you. Because I was thinking that she was somebody that we hadn't worked with before, but had always admired. Which is funny because it feels like that's somebody you worked with before, right? And that's the funny thing. And I remember when we finished with the song, we invited uh, L.A. Reid, who initially signed her, L.A. Babyface signed her initially to LaFace Records. And we had them come to the studio and to listen to the song we had done because we wanted, you know, kind of their blessing and kind of, you know. And it was interesting because L.A., when he heard the song, he just said, he said, I feel like a cavity has just been filled in my soul that I didn't know existed. Damn. <laughs> yeah. And then he said, and I think that's the best Tony Braxton vocal I've ever heard in my life. Ever? Ever. That's what he said. Oh, OK. And I'm like, wow. OK, cool. That's a, so anyway, but that's the kind of like I say, that's for us. That's the kind of feeling we want people to have when they hear the record. We want it. We want them to hear each of their favorite artists. And then we want them to, you know, maybe fall back in love with those artists again. Or remember that time when they fell in love with that artist. And but we also want to do that for the artists 
it was interesting because Babyface is a perfect example of because Babyface normally is very hands on. He produ- produces everything, writes everything, does it. And this one we wrote together, but he just said, you guys produce it. So I was like, OK, cool. So when he heard the finished version of He Don't Know Nothing About It, which is his song, he heard it and he just said, man, that sounds really good. And we said, yeah. And he said, no, that sounds really good. We said, man, you're babyface. What do you think it's going to sound like? But it was a chance for him to hear himself without having to put all, all the work into it and hear all the mistakes as it was happening. So he got to finally just hear himself as babyface, you know, without having to put all the thought into it. And we tried to give all of the artists kind of that opportunity to just just relax and let us handle it, you know. And, and if it's a big success, it's a big success for Babyface or a big success for Tony or a big success for Mary or whatever that is. If it flops, it's Jam and Lewis's fault. That's a, that, that was just on Jam and Lewis's record. So we had everybody had a nice safety net is the way we, we thought of it. Uh, that sounds like a perfect arrangement, <laughs> right? You get none of the credit and all of the blame. <laughs> yeah, we're, but we're fine with that. We're fine with it. We're, we're aged, so it's okay. I, I imagine there was definitely some artists that you hadn't worked with in a while. So I, I love each of your perspectives. What was it like going back into the studio with people that you had been in with in some time was it like riding a bike to use a a cliche or was it did you have to get used to who they had evolved into well the great thing about this is that these artists that we work with are are our friends as well so that we stay in contact with them we see them all the time and when we get back in the studio first of all it's got to be two or three hour conversation and then we do some work um but it's always easy because they're professionals they just come in and we just allow them to be whoever they are or whoever they've evolved into. Um, and we ask their opinion. We want to know what they want to represent, what they want to say. And those things become part of it. And we always say what comes from the heart reaches the heart. And so that it makes it easy for everybody. It's like an easy platform to create from. And uh, it's, it's been successful so far. Kind of like uh, we pull our tape out as a, uh, tailors and we measure measure twice cut once and then we create and it's always been a, a fun experience i think for for everybody that we work with yeah and i, and I just add to that it's the circumstances of doing this because of the reasons i just said it was a way to make music with no pressure because we're at a point in our careers where we feel like we have nothing to prove but we still have a lot to say and so for the artist to be able to come in and just create without, um, I always use the term record company interference. And I, I can't think of a better way to say it, but I don't mean it in a bad way, but I just mean we were able to just go in and create music without the expectation of algorithms, this, and, you know, analysis, this, and, you know, we weren't thinking of it as a marketing scheme or to try to sell anything. We were just, let's go in and just make the best music you can possibly make. You put these names in front of us, you know, and it's like, let's just Mary J. Okay. Let's make the best Mary J record. Like in, like if you look Mary J Blige up in the dictionary, you would go, you know, we were involved with no more drama. We were involved with love is all we need. We were involved with everything. Right. And those songs are quintessential Mary J Blige songs. What would that now sound like? What would that record sound like? And then that's the record we make. So that's what we tried to do with all of the artists. And so the conditions in doing it were, were great. Uh, you talk so much, but both of you have about, you know, your journey and getting to this point now where 
you've won a number of awards. You've had the number one hits. You've had the diamond selling albums and just feeling that level of comfort. Um, not that you're just now experiencing this. I think you've had it probably for a while now, but going back to your journey and how it started. Okay. I've heard Morris Day's version of this story about you being fired by Prince. I got to be honest. If that was on my tombstone, I'd be okay with that. Like Prince must fire me, right? I'd be excited about that. And this is, you know, back when you guys uh, uh, were working with the time and everything. So I have to know, how does Prince fire somebody? How did, What did he say to you? How much of that conversation do you remember? <laughs> Every word, right, Jim? Yeah, I, I remember it all. And actually, I, I, the part I remember, because you actually stayed in the room longer than me, and I'll, I'll set it up a little bit was we were um, we had gone down to Atlanta to produce the SOS band and we got caught in a snowstorm down there and couldn't catch our flight out to make the next uh, the time concert, which was in San Antonio, Texas. That night, we're supposed to go mix that song. Right. And we had recording time set up to, to mix. And Prince calls and he says, meet me at Sunset Sound at six o'clock or whatever. And Terry and I looked at each other and we said, Okay, wait, should we go mix the SOS band song or should we go meet Prince? Well, obviously we're gonna go meet Prince. That was our that was our gig, right? So we show up at Sunset Sound and the accountant is there. And so we go, uh-oh, he must be gonna fire us because you know the accountant's gonna give us our last check or whatever. But the accountant just walks by and he goes, Oh, you guys have a good session. And we're like, okay. We walk into this little room. It's me, Terry, Morris, Jesse, and Prince. And Prince just says, I told you guys not to produce other records on other bands. And we said, yeah. And he said, you produce the SOS band. And we said, yeah. And he said, so you're fired. And I was like, okay. And I got up and walked out the room. <laughs> so, so Terry stuck around a little farther in the room. And then Terry, you can tell what, whatever happened when I left. Oh yeah. Well, right. Picking up where you left off. We had a short conversation where I tried to reason with him, like, why let us go now? This doesn't make any sense. All we're trying to do is better ourselves and learn more and, and have an outlet for our creativity. And he said, you guys are fired. And then, you know, Morse got up and walked out. And then so did I. And so we went outside and we said, OK, so what are we going to do now? We said, go mix. So we went to the studio and we was our first meeting with the engineer there who we had hired. His name was Steve Hodge. And Steve Hodge said, what's wrong with you guys? We just got fired from the time. He said, well, I wouldn't worry about that because you guys have a smash here. And he pushed play and on came just be good to me. And all we could do was dance around. Now, we still had long faces for a minute, but. <laughs> We were dancing hard because that it, it sounded so good, but it was it was uh, definitely fake. So I've I've assembled over the years a, a different terminology for what Prince did for us, and God bless you, Prince, and rest in peace, brother, because we love you. But Prince did not fire us; he freed us to pursue our destiny, and you know we appreciate all that he did for us. And uh, sometimes, you know, being the boss, as we've learned over the years. You have to make hard decisions. So that was his decision. Now, as Jimmy calls it, the epilogue. A couple of weeks later, he called and tried to get me to come back. 
without Jimmy because his idea was to divide and conquer. Wow, that's ruthless. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's business. I get it. But uh, I declined his invitation and the rest is history. So we just moved forward from there. Yeah, I remember it more like, you tell that little like it was like, like if the phone was almost disintegrating in his hand. This was before cell phones, right? So this is big, the big full-size phone. And Terry's got this thing in his hand and he's like, and I'm like, oh, don't tea. It's cool, man. Go ahead. And, it's all good. He says, you tell that little, because Jelly Bean Johnson called him, the drummer called him uh, from the time. And he'd known Terry longer than, than even me. And he was like, no, no, Terry wasn't going for it. So that we were solidified. We were always solidified anyway, but that totally solidified it at that point. Like, no, we're, there's no divide and conquer. We're moving forward with what we're doing. And of course, when Just Be Good to Me came a number one record, then and then he tried to get us back. <laughs> the epilogue is he tried to get us back. Take both of both of you guys this time or. Well, the thing was, we were never really fired. It was a bluff. And we realized that when we went to the accountant to get our check, we thought we were getting our last check. And we walked into the accountant and they said, hey, guys. They gave us our checks and they said, see you next week. And we're like, mm, okay. The next week we went back and the next week we went back. And about after about three weeks, we finally went back and they said, um, there was a guy named Lee Bailey. He had a, had a show called Radio Scope, right? It was a syndicated radio show. And he had cornered us at a concert we were at and said, I heard you guys were fired from the time. And we were like, what are you talking about, man? We, we don't know what you're talking about. So anyway, we go back to the accountant and they go, oh, hey, guys, we, uh, we can't give you your checks this week. And we said, why not? And they said, well, we, we heard you're fired. And we laughed. We said, hey, we got fired a month ago. Where'd you hear we got fired? Oh, it was just on the radio, Lee Bailey, Radioscope. <laughs> so at that point, that's when the bluff was up. And it, and it was like a bluff. It was like kind of like, I'm going to fire them and scare them and see how they do. But at that point, the wheels were already rolling because the record was coming out and everybody said it's going to be a smash. And it was. So that was the end of that. So it's something that I often talk to young people about when I tell them just as important as the open window is the closed door, right? Is that because sometimes an opportunity you don't get could be the one that changes the whole game for you. And you guys, that's such a great example of that. But I'm curious, the next time that you ran into Prince face to face, what was that meeting like? It was fun. I think the next, <laughs> the next time I saw him, you know, it was all... Fun and games, basically, because we were doing fine. But it turned out, I think, was after, uh, was Purple Rain Tour. Yeah, we saw him in Detroit, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I had no ill feeling at that point. But the way he treated, more specifically, Jimmy, because I, he had like a rival, a silent rivalry with Jimmy for some reason. He wasn't treating Jimmy right. And that was the day that I, I disowned him for about two or three years. He was banned at my house. Like, you couldn't even say his name <laughs> or play. His music was banned. His likeness was banned because I just cut it off. It was like, no, you can't, you can't do my man like that and then expect me to be okay with that. That's not cool. So what, so what was this rivalry about, Jimmy, you and Prince? Where did that come from? You know what? I don't really know. I met... I met Prince when I was probably 12 years old. I want to say 13 years old, something like that. We were in junior high together and uh, took a keyboard class together. And I was always impressed with his, you know, musicianship. And I think he was very impressed with my musicianship. 
because I played drums and keyboard. He played drums and keyboard and guitar. Like he, he played a lot of stuff. So I think it was maybe that also we're Gemini's and our birthdays are a day apart. I'm the sixth. He's the seventh. Um, but I, yeah, I don't, I don't really know because I'm, I was always like his biggest fan. Like I, I actually auditioned for his band and I didn't get the gig, which was perfectly fine because Matt Fink got it and Matt was much better than me anyway, but I don't really know what exactly what it was, but, um, I never felt anything like that towards him. And, you know, he made me better. Like the thing that Prince taught me more than anything was work ethic, because I remember back in the time days, we used to go to rehearsals and we would rehearse for, you know, six hours, but he'd rehearse us. He'd be there at the rehearsal, like running us through stuff. And then he'd go rehearse his band, the revolution for six hours. And then he'd go to the studio all night. And then he'd come back the next day and he'd put a tape in. And it would be like 1999 or something or, or lady cab driver or something. It would be like, when'd you do that? He'd go, I did this last night. It's like, when do you sleep? <laughs> like he never. Yeah. Right. After he went to the club. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was crazy, but that taught us about work ethic. And it's like, you know, once again, I always use athletes as, as the analogy. It's like, you know, people like Michael Jordan, who talent wise are already just the best, but then they take that talent and they work like somebody who's a scrub. And when you combine that and when the most talented man on the team is also the hardest working man on the team, first in the gym, first out of the gym, setting his house up. I remember going to his house in Chicago. He set up this whole weight room and would have, you know, Ron Harper and Scottie Pippen and all those guys would come over to work out with him. Right. It's like when you have that as an example, that's what it was. That's what Prince was to me. Like he was the hardest working guy, but he was taking care of everybody. So it made me motivated to try to really do my best at, at, at everything I did. So he was a great example for that. But I don't know what it was. I think it was my mom always said uh, that she said, Prince is jealous of you. And I'm going, how could Prince be jealous of me? Like he's the genius of all geniuses to me. So I don't really know. Speaking of rivalries, and I'll ask you this before we we, we take a um, a short break. So you all also produce for Michael Jackson, and we've heard so many stories about what their rivalry was like. Was this something that we as fans just had built up in our minds? But was that rivalry as real and intense as people have said that it was? I, I don't think it's a direct rivalry. I think it's uh, back in the day we grew up as 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 rivals like we had rival bands we used to battle that's just you know when you hit the stage you have to want to get that tail you have to <laughs> you have to want to take that person out you have to go up there and and, and do what you got to do and prince was that person he was absolutely that person and knowing michael and how he is and how he was and he was that guy too so no one was going to be upstage so everybody is, there's going to be some rub, you know, but Prince had that rub with Rick James also. So it's, you know, it's a well-known thing. So I don't think it was a, in a, any way, a negative thing. It was just artists being artists. That's kind of just what it is. You know, we, we're going to talk trash off the stage, but when we hit the stage, we're going to try to hurt each other. So you can't go after me. I can't go after you, whatever. When I leave the stage, it's my stage. That's what Prince used to always say. This is my stage. Get off my stage. <laughs> so, um, I, like I say, it's a positive thing to me. It, it's all of us lifting each other up. Before Terry and I have been partners for like a long time, but we used to be in rival bands. And Terry's band would go up on stage and kick our ass. 
And then we go on stage and kick his ass, you know, at different times. But we always admired each other. That was the thing. It was finally like, no, let's just team up together. Right. Because but that was the thing. But no, Prince had a rivalry with with everybody. I mean, with the time he had a rivalry, with, you know, the band that he helped create. Oh, yeah. He said, I created Frankenstein because we'd go and try to kick his ass on stage every night. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd make the stage smaller. He'd take lights away from us. He was doing all kinds of stuff. One day he even took a keyboard away from me. Turned the sound down. You know, like I my had my regular keyboard I played and all of a sudden it was gone. I'm like, where's my keyboard? And he's like, oh, Prince has this new keyboard for you. And the keyboard sounded like terrible, right? So it's like, okay, all right. But it's good. I mean, but that's the thing to me. But it was all done to me. It was all admiration. It was all, you know, out of respect. And, and I love Terry. I, it made me fall in love with Terry. It made me admire how talented he was and how great his band was. And when we got together, it was just a mutual admiration society. I love that Prince is so petty. I love it. <laughs> this, this to me only adds to his legacy and the enormity of, of what he accomplished. But people knew that, uh, you know, that he he was one. He took everybody, um, you know, for competition, respect, of course, but but definitely competition. But Michael, too, because we were when we worked on Scream with Michael and Janet together. I swear to God, we did a, a we when, when Michael got done singing in the studio, which was the most impactful studio session ever in our lives. Right. He goes in the studio and just absolutely kills it. Is this for a uh, scream? Is this for scream or scream? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, for scream. So Janet was supposed to go and sing her vocal right after Michael. We were in New York working. And when Michael got done singing, she's sitting between us and she just kind of leans into us and goes, I'll do my vocal in Minneapolis. She wanted no part of following Michael. Right. So we go to Minneapolis, we do Janet's vocal, we send it to Michael. Michael goes, oh, Janet sounds really good. We said, oh, thanks, Michael. Yeah, she sounds really good. Where did she do her vocal? Minneapolis. Okay, I'm coming to Minneapolis. It was like, he couldn't leave it alone. It's like, no, I'm going to come to Minneapolis and get my vocal to sound like Janet's vocal, right? So that competitive thing, um, that's that's just there. You know, that's just there. And by the way, as we're talking about this, imagine how amazing it is for us to have worked with both of those artists, with Prince and Michael Jackson. You could I just, just could drop the mic right there. We wouldn't even have to go any further. I mean, that's crazy. They do no more. They do no more. <laughs> well, it, it, it is um, just thinking about them competing in that way is just kind of funny because siblings, they, as you all know, they, you know, they have rivalries, they have competitive nature. So thankfully you were able to get scream done if they were that way because they, they were constantly listening to each other. Like, no, let me do it again. By the way, on the set of the video, I remember when I went to the set of the video, I was like Switzerland, right? Janet had her camp full of people. Michael had his camp full of people. And literally, I would be sitting in Janet's trailer talking to her and I, there'd be a knock on the door and they say, oh, Michael wants you in this trailer. OK, fine. I go to Michael's trailer. And then about 30 minutes later, there'd be a knock on the door. Oh, Janet wants you in here, her trailer. I was like the only one who was talking to both camps. It was like the craziest thing. But, you know, listen, it was sibling rivalry for sure. But it was intense love. They, they, they Michael and Janet just loved each other, you know. And it was so that was cool to see all that. All right. Um, it's official. You all have to uh, tell more stories. Uh, but I, I do have some other stuff I, I want to talk to you about in addition to the storytelling. Even got a couple sports things because I know you guys are are big sports fans. I know you live in Los Angeles now. Just one quick question. Are you all still holding Minneapolis down on the sports tip? Yeah. I mean, I'm. St- yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We still. I'm st- Jimmy, you sound a little uncertain. <laughs> You're like, ah. 
<laughs> no, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always interested to see what happened with the, what's going to happen with the Timberwolves. I'm, I'm a basketball fan first. I'm, I'm, you know, the Twins. I've, we have great stories with the Twins and with the Vikings and some of the other sports teams up there. But for me, the Timberwolves is always the thing. We went to every single game. Our schedules used to revolve around Timberwolf games. Back, I remember our, our, our assistant, she'd go, um, hey, somebody wants you to come to New York or somebody wants you to go to Atlanta or somebody wants you to go to whatever. And it's like, is there going to be a game there that night? We're, we're, are the Timberwolves playing that night? Like that was always the thing that dictated our schedule was we weren't going to miss a Timberwolves game. And it didn't matter who was in town. Like Janet would be in town and it'd be like, are we going to work tonight? No, there's a Timberwolf game. But you can come to the game, right? So, so we'd go to the game. And that kind of thing. And Prince would go to the games. Prince loved basketball. He loved basketball. Yeah, he did. And he could play. And he could play. That's right. He One of the original scoring point guards was Prince, for sure. That's right. A lot more to get to with you guys, but we're going to take a short break first. And when we come back, more stories, more great insight uh, from the Masters, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. We'll be right back with more from them. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis gave me the full autopsy on what it was like being fired by Prince and how, in hindsight, that experience was probably the best thing that's ever happened to them. I mean, for most of us, that'd be a life highlight being fired by Prince. So I got a story to tell about how the doors you close are sometimes just as important and life changing as the door that opens. So way, way, way back in 1998, Sports Illustrated contacted me about coming to New York City to interview for a job opening. The job was writer reporter, which meant I would fact check stories. And per them, if I came up with good story ideas, they might emphasis on might be considered for the magazine. There's a few things you need to understand before I proceed further with this story. Sports Illustrated was my dream job. I had a subscription in college, and as an aspiring sports journalist, it was the preeminent publication you wanted to work for. Sports Illustrated features some of the best writers in the country, including one of my all-time favorites, Gary Smith. When Sports Illustrated called me, I'd been working in Raleigh at the News and Observer, covering primarily women's sports, which were on fire in that area at the time. So I had my pick of excellent stories. In fact, I did a story on a woman named Mandy Garcia, who was the Citadel's first female athlete. That story won me first place in the North Carolina Press Association's Category 4 Sports Feature Writing. Now, besides that story, I've been doing some really good uh, stories overall in Raleigh. And while covering women's basketball, I befriended a Sports Illustrated reporter named Kelly Anderson, who saw some of my clips, took them back to her bosses at Sports Illustrated. So when they called me for an interview, I was absolutely floored. I thought, here's my moment. They agreed to fly me to New York. They put me up in a swanky hotel that was right near Central Park. I'd never been in New York before, so this was going to be a full-on experience. When it came to the interview, I crushed it. I mean, I killed with a T that shit. They damn near offered me the job on the spot, but the official offer didn't come for a couple of days after I had left New York. Once I got the offer, which I believe was for about 42000 a year, uh, I started looking at places in New York 
just to see what the cost of living was, because like a lot of people, I had heard that New York was extremely expensive. And within a few minutes, I realized that there was no way I was going to be able to afford New York on $42,000. So I went back to Sports Illustrated and asked if they could bump up the money, though I knew they couldn't bump it up that much because if you starting at 42, I have no idea if you're ever going to even make it to 50. I'm guessing you probably wouldn't, right? And they were insistent when I asked them for more money that that was the best that they could do. But I just didn't think it was my testimony to be broke living in New York with seven roommates. So I declined. And it wasn't just because of the money. It was also looking at the job itself. And that really was the primary reason. I was writing these long profiles and great stories in Raleigh, writing pretty much every day. But with Sports Illustrated, I was reduced to a fact checker. And that means that I wasn't going to be able to continue to develop as a writer. So from a money standpoint and a development standpoint, it didn't make any sense for me to go to Sports Illustrated. And so I turned them down and it was one of the most difficult decisions I've ever had to make. At the time, they were the biggest media organization that had ever tried to recruit me. This was the place I dreamed of working since I was in high school. And after I turned them down, the recruiter who interviewed me said, we can afford you now, but I have a feeling we won't be able to afford you later. And he was right. Now, closing the door was life changing for me. I went back to my job in Raleigh, continued to churn out great stories. And then a few months later, the Detroit Free Press, the hometown newspaper I'd worked for in high school and as a college intern, hired me to cover Michigan State football and basketball. From there, I jumped to the Orlando Sentinel after spending six years in Detroit. And it was my first sports columnist job. And then from there, Less than two years later, I went to ESPN and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, I know sometimes we all get fixated on a place or an opportunity, especially young folks who look at big places like a Sports Illustrated or even ESPN as destination places that they absolutely have to get to. But sometimes that's not actually what's right for us. I know the old adage is that when God closes a door, he opens a window. But I believe sometimes God closes a door that was meant to stay closed because what we thought was for us isn't actually for us. And now back to more with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. So since you brought up Janet Jackson, of course, you, you know, I looked up and all of a sudden uh, control is 30 plus years old. <laughs> right. And I was like, what happened? <laughs> right. Um, and it's such an iconic album. She's such a, a iconic, you know, artist. When you all think about, you know, what you did for control um, or what that did for her career or the, the, the music and the magic that you guys made together on that particular album. Maybe you didn't think this at the time, but how surprising is it for you that Control is a timeless album and you can pop it in today. So much about it is relevant. It still sounds great. It doesn't sound like it's dated. You know, what does that mean for you all to know that this album has really stood the test of time? Well, it feels great. What we set out to do with that record was we thought that Janet's first two albums, which were really well produced albums, but when we thought of Janet, we always thought, first of all, as a little girl, she always had such attitude about her. 
like whether she was on the variety show with her brothers or the share show or any of those variety shows. Or playing Penny on Good Times. <laughs> yeah. She always had this attitude about her. And then when she made the first two records, for the most part, it was just kind of soft and pretty and that. And actually, Jesse Johnson, the guitar player in the time, produced a couple songs on her second album that had a little bit of that attitude. And we just kind of thought, that's what we need to do. So when we started producing Control, the idea was twofold. One was to give her tracks that were aggressive tracks, almost like at the time a, a rapper or, or a male artist would do, right? That kind of aggression on the track. And then the second thing was to actually ask her opinion on what she wanted to write about, because rather than just give her songs. And I remember when she first came to Minneapolis, we sat around for like the first week we didn't even go to the studio. We went riding around the lake. We went to restaurants. We went to movies. We went to clubs. And she said, when are we going to start working? And we said, oh, we're working. And we showed her the lyrics, or at least the beginning of the lyrics to control. And when she looked at the lyrics, she said, oh, wait, this is what we've been talking about. And we said, yeah. And she said, so whatever we talk about, that's what we're going to write about? And we said, yeah. And she said, oh, well, then I want to write about this. And I want to write about this. And it got her wheels turning about being a writer, but nobody has included her in the process like that. And I think that was the breakthrough. And the combination of that, the attitude that we were able to bring, being in Minneapolis, being away from kind of, you know, her comfortable life and being like, no, we're here to work. Um, no bodyguards, no, you know, it wasn't that kind of thing. It was just like, gave her a Chevy Blazer. We said, here, you got to find your way around. No GPS at this point, right? So you had to have a map to find your way. How to get from the hotel to the studio. Have a map, yeah. She had to stop at the gas station. Like, do you know where? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But all of those kind of life experience things we were able to then articulate and put on, on the record. So I think that, that made it a much different record. And the other thing is, when we made the record, there was a house that we stayed in in L.A. that was, you know, it was in the hood, Right. And I remember we used to drive down the street or walk down the street and we always hear music blasting out of people's house. And when we made control, we said, we want to be the song blasting out of everybody's house. And that was simple as that. We wasn't about we want to have a number one record or we wanted to cross over to the pop charts. And we weren't thinking of that in our neighborhood that we were in our little house in L.A. We wanted to just have that experience. And I remember walking down the street after control came out, after the album came out. Walked down the street and sure enough, out of everybody's house was blasting control. And we were like, we did. It. That's what we set out to do. So we didn't know about the impact down the line. 35 years later, the impact it was going to have. But we knew what we set out to do when we did it. Her voice, her lyrics, her ideas, attitude. And let's just make the record for our street in our neighborhood. And that's what that record was. Yeah. And also, you got to add in there the, the, the level of trust that we developed in each other um, because it allowed her to do things that she never would do. Like singing her lower register. She wouldn't sing in her Janet Jackson voice. She, <laughs> or nasty, you know, she's down, she's down there with me. So the dream street voices. I like yeah. to think of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, so just the trust was everything. And that allowed her to grow and allowed us to, to help her. grow. I think that made a, a huge impact on how we made the record. I'm going to put you on the spot first, Terry, and then, Jimmy, I want your answer. Terry, what's your favorite song on that album? Man, that's hard because I love all those songs. But uh, I'll go with Nasty because Nasty was um, one of the first songs that we did that I thought was really innovative. 
just because Jam has gotten this keyboard <laughs> and he was making sounds out of this thing that I had never heard before. And I was like, okay, cool. And we were able to craft a song out of that uh, because it inspired just a whole nother relationship sonically. And it's like, okay, cool. All right, Jimmy, your turn. I'm going to go, what have you done for me lately? Because that was a song where I was actually in the studio. I remember this. I was in the studio and I was working on a track. And when Terry walked in, I was working on the bridge of the song. And the bridge of the song was the part that had the bass line that went dum 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 right? So when Terry walked in the studio, that's what he heard. And he said, oh, man, I love that. I love that. And I said, no, that's just the bridge. And he said, no, 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 that should be the song. And I was like, no, that's just the bridge of the song. No, no, that should be the song. Just loop that up and that should be the song. It's like, okay, cool. So that's how that song started forming. And then the story that I told a little bit earlier about, you know, when John McClain heard the album, became the time to hear the album, when we played him all the songs, we played him, you know, Nasty and Control. And when I think he, we played him all these songs and he goes, I just need one more. Like, what are you talking about? We said, forget it. So we went in the car, we started playing songs from our album. And when he heard the third track he heard was that track. And he said, oh, give that to Janet. And we're like, what are you talking about, man? So the next day we go to the studio, we put the song on. We didn't tell Janet we were going to play it. We put the song on. She comes to the door. She kind of looks and she's kind of pointing at us. And she's like, who's that for? And we said, you, if you want it. And she said, I want it. And that song became, what have you done for me lately? So it literally was, you know, the thing that started her on her path, at least her first single from the record. But that between that and the fact that Terry heard a whole different thing than I was hearing on the song, I just think that there's a there's a kind of a magic to the way that all came together. Best deep cut on that album is funny how time flies. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that one. I was going to say that one. I didn't want to disrespect the rest of the songs, but that might be my favorite song on there because it's so unexpected from everything else. I mean, obviously, like, what have you done for me lately and Nasty? I mean, those are huge, monstrous hits. So I was like, I can't really, in my, I can't really pick that one, but it's like, that was the one that over time became like, you know, my favorite. She wouldn't play that for her mom, by the way. When she played, when she played the album for her mom for the first time, she said she faded it out. She said before it got to the end, she just kind of said, "Okay, mom," and it just kind of fades out after that or whatever. She just faded it out. Way to, way to sneak that one by. Is there an artist today that in any way reminds you all of Janet Jackson? That's a great question. I don't know directly. No, I don't. I don't see any directly. There's no direct comparison, I don't think. But I, I didn't know if there was anybody today that you thought would remind you a little bit of her. No, I, I think there's, but there's obviously influence. I see her influence on a lot of artists, you know, you know, probably our favorite artist right now, the, the newer artist is her, the, the, the artist, her, who's, you know, just, you know, she's one of those people that I always say there's certain artists that in any generation, they would have been the best of their generation. And she's that she could have been in the forties, the fifties, it wouldn't have mattered. She would have been there. And I remember we were the music directors for the Prince special that the Grammys did last year. And I remember watching her shred the guitar with Gary Clark Jr. on Let's Go Crazy and then sit down at the piano and do the beautiful ones, you know, and and it's like she would be the kind of artist that Prince would invite straight to Paisley Park. Like if he was alive, he would be like, oh, no, girl, you got to come over and come over to Paisley. Right. 
So she's on a whole nother, she's on a whole nother level. And, but I think there's influence there. And actually they have a mutual influence because when Janet was pregnant, her was what she listened to, to get through the pregnancy. And uh, I was able to connect them. We were able to connect them, the two of them together. And they're now good friends and all of that. But so I, I think I see her influence in different artists and all, obviously over the years, everybody from, you know, you name it, from Britney Spears to Normani to Beyonce to, yeah, I mean, when you think about what people do, the way that videos are used, the little headset microphones that everybody uses, all of those things are all kind of Janet influence. So her influence is definitely there, but I don't know if there's anybody right now that I think is kind of that same thing. You all um, have such good chemistry uh, as producers. What's the closest you all have ever come to breaking up? Yeah, well, we go home at night. <laughs> it's never been, you know, hey, this is not for me anymore. You guys have never reached that moment where you want to dissolve the partnership. No, I, I tell people all the time that the foundation of our partnership was a handshake. We shook hands back in, what, 82? We shook hands and we said 50-50. So then what that did is it took any discussion out of like when you're creating songs, or you're creating music, whatever. Man, that's my title. No, but that's my melody, man. No, that's my, that's my hook, man. No, but I did the music, man. You know, you don't have any of those discussions. It's 50-50. Terry can do a song all by himself. And th this has happened. Terry will do a song all by himself and I'll hear it when it comes out. I'll be, well, I like that, man. Would you do that? You know? But I know I got 50% of it, so I'm good, you know, and vice versa. The other philosophy was that in doing that, we always felt like um, it's not whether it's my way or his way. It's about the best way wins, right? So we just figure out what the best way to go about doing something. I always say, we, I never argue with Terry. We never get in an argument. We've never been in an argument because an argument is something I feel you, you're trying to win, Right. So that means, let's say I get in an argument with Terry and I win the argument. That means Terry's lost the argument. And I never want to see Terry Lewis lose at anything, particularly something I'm involved with, right? But if we substitute the word disagreement, yes, we don't agree on everything. But a disagreement is something we're trying to solve, right? So if I think I have my opinion, he has his opinion. Now we just figure out what's the best way to go forward. And that's the way we treat it. And it's, it's, it's rooted in respect. You know, I mean, I just think and I, I really don't have a desire to do this without Terry. And, and the great thing about our, our kind of our relationship is we're free. I know there's the, you know, that we're joined at the hip, that that's the perception everybody has. Like we do everything together, but we live separate lives. We do our thing. And where we come together musically, that's like our intersection, you know. And so we are each free to do what we enjoy doing. I was we were talking to somebody earlier and we were saying that there are certain artists like Usher, for instance, Usher probably Terry knows Usher much better than me. And Usher probably thinks, what does Jimmy do? I've never seen him. Where is he at? Right. That kind of thing. You know, but then there's other artists that would go, what's Terry do? I never see him, you know, but it's but we come together when it's important. And, and we're always together spiritually. We're always together. There's a, a definite spiritual connection. there. And, and to be honest with you, there was a time where I had lost my fever for music uh, and production just because I just didn't think the artistry was holding it, its value in the right place. 
And I went and I sat on jam. So I remember doing this. I was like, jam, I don't know if I can do this. No more. You know, it was just like, because like I said, the journey is important to me and I never want to arrive. So I felt like I didn't have done it. Don't want to do it again. And then along came Usher and he kind of reinvigorated my, my, my feeling about music and gave me interest because he was so interested in his, his career and in his craft. And it just made me feel good about it again. I was like, Oh shit. Well, okay. I can get in this again. So let's go. So, cause it's, it's always, you want to battle. That's what makes it interesting. That's what makes it good. I always tell my kids, you have to learn how to get comfortable being uncomfortable. I've, I've mastered that art. I, I like being uncomfortable. It's okay with me because it, it makes you grow. It makes you expand. It makes you reach. And so, um, there has been that time, but had nothing to do with Jimmy, everything to do with how I felt internally about what what I was given. And that's the most important thing for me is what I can contribute. I like to I don't like to come to the party and not bring something. I got to bring a hat or a whistle or something. Speaking of Usher, uh, something I want to get you all's opinion on. So Timberland, as you are aware, Timberland and Swiss Beats have created this versus product. Um, first, what do you all think about that, about the concept? Tears clapping. (laughs) The concept is great because the concept is music creation. I mean, it's about celebrating the creators of music. So I love that. I love that. That's what the concept is. And um, we've actually had conversations with Swiss about that, about really that the way the spelling of it and the whole thing, that it really is not so much about competition. It's more about appreciation and that it should have its own definition in the dictionary. That's what we said to them. And anything that exposes people to music and connects people together through music, I think, is a, is a great thing. So has he talked to you guys about doing one? Yeah, we've been talking since the inception of it, actually. It just hasn't been the right uh, timing and the right kind of situation. But, you know, I, I said the two things that always come to mind initially. I know there was a lot of talk with, you know, Jan and Lewis versus L.A. and Babyface, because that's kind of we're kind of from the same era and that. And people always thought we were we were rivals, but actually we were really good friends. Um, and uh, so that, I guess, would would be interesting at some point, although there's two that interest us possibly. One would be Gamble and Huff, because Gamble and Huff would kick our ass. <laughs> we can't even hold a candle to them. And honestly, there would be no Jam and Lewis without Gamble and Huff. So. That one's easy, but I'd gladly get my ass kicked and that would be great. I'd be perfectly fine with that. But the other one I, 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 that I'd like to do that's intriguing to me is I'd like to do Jam versus Lewis because we each have our own songs that we think are by far our best, you know. Okay, I think that's the best one. I do have to say that's the best one. Yeah, that could be really interesting and some interesting conversations as, you know, going into the, the way the songs got put together and all that kind of stuff, so. But we'll figure something out. But we enjoy it. We're, we're fans of it. Always have been big Timbaland, Swizz Beats fans just as producers. So the fact that they've taken their platform of music and built a whole new platform from that is is amazing. So, yes, applause. Applause. Mm. So Terry brought up Usher. And the reason I brought up Versus is because Timbaland recently said that in a Versus battle, Chris Brown would beat Usher. Your thoughts as producers of Usher, you saw that? What do y'all think of that? I saw that. I saw that. I'm not going to have a huge opinion on it, but I'm going to have a huge opinion on it. Usher sets the stage for Chris Brown. And the way Usher delivers his 
music, his cadence, his melodic structures, is what Chris Brown has copied to do his. So if you think the sensei is going to get beat by the student, fine. But I don't believe that because I think Usher kind of created uh, that whole persona and structure that everybody else in the contemporary world lives in. Because that's where it started. So I would go with Usher every day. Although I think Chris Brown is extremely talented. Love Chris. But Usher is on a whole nother level. Jimmy, you uh, you agree? <laughs> what I what I would say is just that I I would actually love to see it. I think I think it would be great because I think if you talk about music appreciation, it would be like I mean maybe the bad analogy, but it would be like you know when you watch you know Dr. J back in the day, and then when Michael Jordan came along, there was always that kind of comparison, and then when Michael Jordan passed it on to like Kobe, and then there was that comparison, and they, there were similarities. But you know that each one of the games was was kind of molded by the, the predecessor, right? Kobe's game came from watching Michael. Michael's game came from watching Dr. J. So that kind of thing is interesting to see. So it'd be interesting musically then to hear what that sounds like. Because as Terry said, I think a lot of what Chris Brown does, Usher was always the, he was the one that you were, that you were shooting for. He was the inspiration. So it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting. So I want to, you know, being that you guys are, are from uh, Minneapolis, obviously a lot has transpired in the city. Uh, last year, we're a year removed from the death of George Floyd. I know you all don't live there anymore, but I imagine to some degree your your pulse and your heartbeat is always there. What are your thoughts about uh, how the community has been impacted uh, and, and what personal impact did it have for you being that George Floyd's murder happened in your city? Well, for me, not only did it happen in my city, but it happened about four blocks from where I grew up, the house that I lived in. And uh, that 38th Street area, I mean, I lived on 41st and that happened, I think, on 38th Street. So, I mean, it's literally my neighborhood. It's interesting. I, I, we were just back in Minneapolis uh, about a month ago and we did uh, Optimistic, the song Optimistic, which is our favorite song we've ever been involved with, with Sounds of Blackness. And uh, we were reminiscing about growing up in Minneapolis a little bit. And it was almost like in Minneapolis, there was kind of a closeted racism that was happening, but it was kind of disguised because everybody was so nice. It wasn't the kind of and this is just my thought it wasn't the like in the south where somebody doesn't like you because of your race or whatever they just they're like you know get get out or you can't come in or whatever in minneapolis i think it was much more of a subtle thing where they may maybe someone doesn't like you but they're going to still be polite to you you know and so maybe it's under the rug but we remember we were we were talking about even like back in the day, there was an incident that happened with Terry and myself where it was the literally we got the keys to the city. Like it was Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis Day in Minneapolis. And we went from, you know, the governor's office and the whole thing. We did this whole thing. We went downtown to grab a bite to eat. And when we walked into where the restaurant was, it was kind of in a mall type of situation. When we walked in where the restaurant was. A couple of people asked for our autographs. Right. So we said, cool, we signed an autographs and stuff. Next thing you know, here comes like the security guard and the police and stuff. It's like, 
you guys have to move along. And it's like, what are we doing? You're loitering. I'm like, no, we're not loitering. We <laughs> signed a couple autographs. It's like, hey, it's Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis Day. But at that point, it made us realize that it didn't matter whether we got a governor award or we, it was our day. At the end of the day, you know who we were? We were just some black people. And that's the thing. You, it, it, you, you wear it every single day of your life. And so hearing about those kinds of incidents with the police, we, used to, we always used to say when we'd leave the studio at night, because we'd leave late two in the morning, whatever, we'd leave the studio. And Terry would say, oh, man, cops pulled me over last night. I would say, what was it? And we'd, we'd always go just DWB, driving while black. So that was our experience growing up. So I can't say I'm surprised. I'm, I'm, I mean, it's a tragedy. It's, it's, it's the worst that, could, that it could possibly be. But hopefully it's a light that's being shined on a situation that kind of subtly existed that obviously needs to be out in the open. You know, and it's also weird for me personally, because I grew up a lot of my friends. I had a, one of my best friends growing up. His dad was a was a police officer and he went into law enforcement after that. So it's not the job that is the wrong in here. It's the people that are doing the job that are the wrong. And that's too bad, you know, and, and prayers to the to the family and everybody involved. But it pains me to see Minneapolis shown in that light. But if that is the light that we need to be shown, and if that's the reality, then that's what we need to do and we need to build from that. Yeah, well, hopefully the light takes away the infection. I think the thing that hurts the most to me about it, you know, because I hate to see anyone lose their life. The thing that hurts the most is that I'm not surprised about it. This is standard fare for my whole lifetime and, and watching how young black men have been slayed murdered or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's very hurtful. It's distressing. It's all across the nation. Um, and it's all because of people's preferences or attitudes, I, I like to call it. When you, when you deal with law enforcement, I have a lot of friends who are law enforcement, but they don't approach it the same as a lot of people do. Because anytime that I've been negatively impacted by law enforcement, these words always come across. I am the law. And because I ask why, uh, because I'm, you know, I'm a taxpayer and I can ask why I'm being stopped or I'm pulled over or accosted for something that I didn't do or being accused of something like even shoplifting for being in a store. I'm like, I got money. What are you talking about? I, you don't have to come to me like that. Well, what are you doing? I am the law. Well, no, you're upholding the law, but you are not the judge, the jury, and the executioner. You know, so it's the attitude about law enforcement that gets people in trouble. And whether you're like, you like black people, whether you don't like black people, this should have nothing to do with it. Because if the law is the law, it's the law for everyone. And that's how it should be. But obviously it's not there. So that's the part that's hurtful. And, you know, once again, I hate to see anyone lose their life. But, you know, like I tell my son, if, if someone stops you, comply with whatever they say, live to play another day. I will be there in your defense and just comply. If he says stop, stop. Lay down, show me everything. <laughs> just resign yourself to the fact that that's going to happen. 
it's it's a terrible situation and we, we have to do something about it as a nation. Yeah, it's hard because there are so many instances where we do comply and it still doesn't work out, you know, for us. So it's that the core is a there's a mentality that you just spoke about. The core of it is so rotten. And unfortunately, George Floyd had to lose his life for people to understand this, even though we've been talking about this forever. We thought after Rodney King, things would get better and they didn't. And so uh, hopefully this will be the wake up call this country uh, needs. Um, Switching gears a little bit and I'm about to get you guys out of here. But before you go, there is a game I like to play with all of my guests. And the game is called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices. You all have to pick one choice. I don't care how difficult the two choices are. You got to pick one. And being that you all are such musical geniuses, I'm going to have you literally settle every musical debate, especially some that me and my husband have. So I can say what Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis said, and I can hold that over his head. Of course, if you disagree with me, I will never tell him that you said it. So that's kind of the, the way that it works. All right. Uh, first up. Kevin Garnett or Randy Moss, bigger Minneapolis athlete impact. <laughs> wow, that's a good one to start off with. Ooh, that would make my stomach drop. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's Minnesota impact, not impact on us personally, right? Yeah, it's been an impact on your city. I, I got to say Randy Moss. Randy Moss, okay. Who you going with, Jimmy? I want to go with Randy Moss because I just like to agree with Terry. <laughs> that's not how this is supposed to work. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, then I'm gonna. Okay, well, in that case, I'll, I'll go with Kevin Garnett because, um, yeah, I'll go with Kevin. Okay, in terms of voice, Mariah Carey or Whitney Houston? I'm gonna go Whitney because I don't think I think Mariah is amazing. Obviously, I mean, she's our current single, so <laughs> she's obviously amazing. But I just think that Mariah. I always tend to go toward the the the. Um, the person that kind of set the tone for the other people that came behind them. And I just think that so much of what Mariah does was influenced by Whitney. So I think I'll go, I go with Whitney just because of that. I have to go with Mariah because I think Mariah's longevity and the different gears that she has just vocally, and she can hit that. The glass breaking. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that astronomy note. Um, <laughs> is is unparalleled like she does stuff and then just knowing her talent as a songwriter producer i was gonna say she's incredible writer yeah she's incredible so like i love whitney and and i love what she does to my heart but i also love mariah what she does to my heart and then other gears that i know i have to pick mariah you know it's interesting too not to get off into a whole nother thing before Whitney passed, one of the things we had talked about, Terry and I had talked about, was we always wanted to do a record with Whitney. But because she's not a writer in the technical sense, we knew that she could just, the way we sat with Janet and Janet just was able to explain ideas and that. And then we were able to hone that into songs. We wanted to do that with, with, uh, with Whitney. And Whitney, I remember at one point she was going to go on and do an Oprah interview or something like that. And we said, instead of doing an Oprah interview, well, not instead of doing it. But how about put your thoughts, whatever you would say to Oprah, let's talk about that and let's make songs out of it. Because now you have an album that says everything that it is that you want to say, which we've kind of done with Janet. That was kind of the same idea. 
And we never got a chance to do that. So, I mean, we don't really have regrets, but that's one that we wish we could have seen happen. If there was one regret, that would be it. That would be it. Yeah. Mm. Now, this is an argument me and my husband have regarding Mary J. Blige. Better album, My Life or Share My World? My Life. My Life is in my top five all-time greatest albums. Yeah, that is the quintessential, yeah, Mary. That is the making of Mary. <laughs> That's the root. Share My World doesn't exist without my life. Yeah, at, look, for me, because uh, what's the Formula One came out when I was in high school? My life came out when I was in college. Totally different experience when I was in college and going through my own little, you know, romantic dust ups. And I was like, my life just connected my soul. And I tell him all the time, I was like, see, you're not a woman. You don't understand. It is my life. That is the answer. So happy to know I have won that argument. And uh, finally, bigger perfectionist. Was it Prince or Michael Jackson? Michael. Michael, for sure. Absolutely. Michael was, when we did Scream, I remember... We wrote the song. We figure we're done, like song's done. And then the next two or three days, literally, we would sit there and listen to the song and Michael would go, are we sure we're challenging ourselves to really come up with the best possible thing we could do? And we're thinking, yeah, we're good. I think we're good, Mike. Prince, you would start a song and the same day it would be totally done. There was no nitpicking over little things like Prince would start at the beginning of the day. We'd go in a session song would be done by the end of the day. So they're two totally different people in the way they work. And it obviously what they, they both did worked great, but perfectionist, definitely Michael. Michael. Prince, yeah. yeah. Prince was just whatever's there, man. It's, it's just the, let's just go with it. Prince's perfection was good enough. Yeah, that's good enough. Let's go. Next. <laughs> I mean, he, he was, and this is not a hint to his basketball ability, but he was a volume shooter because he, my man got so many songs. It's like, dude, okay. And maybe that's why he, he had that attitude a little bit. Those are the ones you heard. The thousands that you didn't hear. Right. That are awesome. That he just got tired of. That was enough. That's good enough. Those are stellar. And, you know, those are the songs that are in the vault. And hopefully people that, that are running that know how to get those songs across and, and, and get them to market at some point. Because they're songs that we've heard that we were a part of sometimes that never came to light a day that we know. Like, what happened to that song? Like, Prince, has, he's amazing. He's an amazing guy. Mm. But he, Michael, definitely. The perfectionist. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure this dawns on you. Uh, probably far more than most of the public, but I, I just, if you'd have told me growing up that there would be a time in my life where Prince and Michael Jackson wouldn't be here, I would have just thought you were like, you're lying. That's never going to happen. Right. And so it, it's still every, same thing with Whitney, like just a, a pain will just run through my heart. Like they're not here. And my big regret is I never saw Whitney in, in concert. I saw Prince, I saw Michael Jackson, never, never got around to Whitney. And so it's, um, it, but their music lives on forever, much like your music has lived on forever and will continue to do so. And I just thank you all, not just for what you've contributed to music culture, to black culture, um, but just for continuing to make music and making us all smile and giving us all joy, especially at a time right now where there are days a lot of us wake up and say, have the stupid people won? 
Okay. Thank you for making me believe the stupid people did not win. Oh, and a, a note here real quick before you go for real. Um, my producer, Rich, just sent me a text that said Optimistic is his favorite song. <laughs> Our favorite song, too. Yeah, and, which is uh, amazing considering the catalog you all have. It's like for that to be number one, that is a big testament to that song. Every high school choir I know <laughs> learned that damn song. So uh, that song will certainly have its own legacy. Anyway, thank you, gentlemen, for joining me me on Jamel Hill is unbothered and sharing your unbothered opinions. Really appreciate you and can't wait to see that versus. Oh, yeah. We appreciate you. Well, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, they're getting up out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Uh, your favorite segment, Fucking Unbothered. Full transparency here. I am taking aim at another Spotify podcaster because frankly, I just can't let what he has done ride. Now, let me be clear. If another Spotify podcaster ever came from me because of something I did wrong, I wouldn't even trip. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And even if I think I'm not wrong, I would expect certain things I say to be called to the carpet because that's the way the marketplace of ideas work. So with that said, fuck it, I'm bothered about Joe Rogan, host of the Spotify podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience, which has been wildly successful. Joe recently disclosed he contracted COVID. I wish him well. And I hope he doesn't experience some of the lingering COVID issues that others have experienced well after they've recovered, which include having difficulty with taste or smell, fatigue and shortness of breath. I would wish Joe Rogan a speedy recovery, but apparently that isn't necessary because Joe Rogan overcame COVID in record time. Take a listen. So we immediately threw the kitchen sink at it. All kinds of meds, monoclonal antibodies, uh, ivermectin, Z-Pak, uh, prednisone, everything. Uh, and I also got an NAD drip and a vitamin drip. And I did that three days in a row. And so here we are on Wednesday and I feel great. That man named everything but a Flintstone chewable in helping him recover. Joe Rogan has been one of the staunchest anti-vaccine people out there. Now, he doesn't classify himself as anti-vaccine, but he has said repeatedly that healthy young people need to be concerned with taking the vaccine because he believes their natural immune systems will hold up. So just a couple questions I'd like to present regarding this topic. One, is Joe Rogan a doctor or any sort of medical expert? The answer is no. Is Joe Rogan an ophthalmologist? The answer is also no. Is Joe Rogan rich? The answer is hell yes. So it's that last part that's really fucking important. Joe Rogan signed an $100 million deal with Spotify. What kind of health care y'all think comes with that kind of money? Next, Joe Rogan literally listed every unproven, non-FDA approved experimental drug he took to supposedly get healthy from COVID. But the vaccine, which did receive emergency FDA authorization and the Pfizer vaccine, which was approved by the FDA, he thinks that's skeptical. This motherfucker took ivermectin, which is a horse dewormer. 
They give the shit to horses to help them with parasites as well as other animals. I've read countless stories about how emergency rooms across the country are now filled with people overdosing on ivermectin because so many people in high profile positions who are rooted in ignorance continue to promote this drug as a way to help you get over COVID. But here's what the FDA says about ivermectin on its website. The FDA has not authorized or approved ivermectin for use in preventing or treating COVID-19 in humans or animals. Ivermectin is approved for human use to treat infections caused by some parasitic worms and head lice and skin conditions. Currently available data do not show ivermectin is effective against COVID-19. Clinical trials assessing ivermectin tablets for the prevention or treatment of COVID-19 in people are ongoing. Taking large doses of ivermectin is dangerous. If your healthcare provider writes you an ivermectin prescription, fill it through a legitimate source such as a pharmacy and take it exactly as prescribed. Never use medications intended for animals on yourself or other people. Animal ivermectin products are very different from those approved for humans. Use of animal ivermectin for the prevention of treatment of COVID-19 in humans is dangerous. Straight from the FDA. So it is extremely dangerous and irresponsible that somebody with Joe Rogan's platform and listenership to encourage people to take those cocktail of medicines that he listed. Most of the people that follow Joe Rogan don't have his money, his financial success or his access to health care. His claim that he beat COVID in three days is practically nectar for the people who already don't take COVID seriously and for the anti-vaxxers who would take all of that non-approved experimental shit he endorsed over the vaccine. Understand the jig. Joe Rogan capitalizes off ignorance. It's one of the many ways he's built his empire. If you are crazy enough to think a Z-Pack and some horse dewormer will beat COVID, God help you. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the fodder. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, our executive producer is Christina Tapper. Supervising producer is Jifa Yador. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It Unbothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or That Music, The Choice Is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Pete Boat Music. You can find me at Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill, and please remember to hit follow on Jamel Hill is Unbothered on Spotify and share with your friends. Ha. This sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I will.